Have you ever been a victim of circumstance? So something bad happens to you totally outside of your control. The odds are like a million to one, but in that event, all the right circumstances align and seemingly by chance that, that terrible thing happens. And take, for instance, the story of Tsutomu Yamaguchi. I think if I'm pronouncing that right, Yamaguchi was on a business trip in Japan for Mitsubishi. And then one morning at 8.15 around then, he heard a plane passing overhead in the sky. And he looked up and he saw two little parachutes floating down. And then in an instant, he witnessed this huge white flash. And it was an atomic bomb going off. Yamaguchi was in Hiroshima in 1945 when the bomb went off. The blast wave left him with burns across his body, ruptured both of his eardrums, temporarily blinded him. He managed to make his way to a bomb shelter, and actually his wounds weren't too bad, and he was, he was released, he was shipped home, he was on a train home. And uh, guess where he lived? Nagasaki. Three days later, Yamaguchi was well enough to make it into work. And as he was telling his boss the story of how Hiroshima was destroyed by the bomb, so the story goes, he witnessed the same white flash outside the office window. The second bomb just fallen over Nagasaki. He was once again just just far enough away to avoid death. And Yamaguchi is the only official, officially recognized person to survive the two atomic bombings. Thankfully, the radiation never got to him. He lived to be 93 years old. But talk about amazing circumstances, right? I mean, that guy, he did nothing wrong. It's not like he was living dangerously, he wasn't living on the edge, he wasn't doing anything reckless. He was going about his normal day. But then seemingly these random circumstances aligned and he just went through this unspeakable suffering. It's totally outside of his control. He was an unfortunate bystander. He was a victim of circumstance. The same, however, cannot be said of Jesus. Although some people try. Do you know, some people think that Jesus was just a victim of circumstance, a bystander. You know, he's a good guy, he's a great teacher, he had a nice following. And maybe he even thought of himself as the Messiah, but it it didn't work out. His plans to enact social change failed, and he got caught up in a series of unfortunate circumstances. He messed with the wrong people, he, he overplayed his hand, he overstepped his bounds. And the religious establishment turned on him, and he died a defeated death. But this could not be further from the truth. Far from being a victim of circumstance, Jesus was the master of his own domain. In fact, he's the only person ever to live fully in charge of his own destiny. The end of his life was literally written down before he was even born, and there was no stopping it. Understand, yes, bad things happened to Jesus. He was betrayed, tried as a criminal, and eventually crucified. But But he wasn't surprised, and he didn't despair because everything that happened to him happened for a reason. It all happened according to God's predetermined plan. And everything went right on schedule, the right time, the right place, the right people, the right outcome. Jesus knew he was carrying out God's plan in his death. And so far from being a a victim, he was a volunteer. He willingly went to the cross knowing exactly what it would entail, and exactly what it would accomplish. It's so important that you realize this, because that, it totally frames how we understand the death of Christ. When you see God's hand in it, that he was in control of it, you realize he didn't die defeated. He died victorious, and he was not a victim, but the willing lamb of God. 
And this fact really shines through in the passage we have for this morning. God's sovereign control over the circumstances of Christ's death found in Mark 14. Why don't you turn there now in your Bibles. Mark 14, verses 12 through 21. Mark 14, 12 through 21. You know, Jesus himself said this, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It's John 10, verse 18. No person is in control with when and how they die. You're not, control, you're not in control of how you enter this world, and you're not in control of how you exit this world. But Jesus was. His life was an ordinary being the Son of God, and his death was an ordinary being the sacrifice for sinners. And this morning, we're going to witness just how in control of his own death Jesus was. And we'll see what that means for us today. Mark 14 is where we're at. We started this chapter last week, verses 1 through 11, where that's where we found out about Judas's betrayal. This chapter really sets the stage for the crucifixion, which takes place in the next chapter. But here, we, we find out in this chapter, chapter 14, how Jesus went from being the most popular guy in town on, on Sunday to being the most hated guy in town on Friday. Chapter 14 tells us how that happened. And, and the primary culprits are the religious leaders of Israel. They had the most to lose in light of Christ's meteoric rise to popularity. Because Jesus opposed them. They were crooks, they were hypocrites, they were frauds and false believers. And Jesus, he exposed them all the time. And furthermore, as Jesus gains popularity, the chances of him leading some populist revolt goes way up. And that's the last thing the religious leaders wanted because if the people revolt, then the Romans move in, and the Romans move in, who, who are they going to kick out first? Well, all the religious leaders. So they, they can't have this. The rise of Jesus is a direct threat to their power, and it, it doesn't matter if he's the Messiah. They're not going to lose their grip over Jerusalem and the temple. In all, Jesus had become enough of a problem for them, so they figure it's time to finally take him out of the way. It's finally time to kill him. So we learned last week how all the religious leaders, they gathered together to plot the death of Jesus, and then Judas came to them, and he gave them that the spark, the spark they needed to set their plan in motion to kill Jesus. Through his insider information, they'd finally be able to nab Jesus in private, away from the crowds, and carry out their murderous intentions. Now, after reading all this last week, learning about this, you might get the impression that that these guys are in control. These religious leaders, I mean, this is their plan. It's their plot. It worked. They succeeded. Seems like they're in the driver's seat. In a sense, it's true. Jesus died because of their actions, and they'll be held accountable for it. But that's not the ultimate reason why Jesus died and why he died in this way. He died because this was the plan. This was the plan from the foundation of the world. And far from the religious leaders being in control, Jesus was in control. And God was orchestrating all these events to bring about his desired end, namely Christ on the cross. This is what we find evidence in our passage. It's just what the text says today, Mark 14, verses 12 through 21. In every way, Jesus was in control. Even though this was the darkest moment in all of history, God was still sovereignly directing it. He was using this greatest evil to bring about the greatest good. And that knowledge provides us the greatest comfort 
because Jesus is still sovereignly directing all things for our benefit, for our good, for those who love him. So this morning, we want to study this passage. We want to see for ourselves how God evidences his sovereignty over his son's death. And from this, we find great hope because the Lord, he's still the sovereign over our lives. He's still directing things according to his will. Well, let's get started. Let's start with this. Number one, let's find God's sovereignty over the day of Christ's death. The actual day. Christ's, or rather, God's sovereignty over the day of Christ's death. And let's begin. We'll go through as we read verse 12. It starts off and says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover for you? As we pick things up now, We've moved forward to the Thursday of Passion Week, the day before he dies. Passover was nearing. You remember that the celebration of Passover? At the center was the sacrifice of a lamb, which commemorated the first Passover lamb. Back in the time of the Exodus, the tenth plague on the land was the, the killing of all the firstborn sons. But the sons of Israel could be spared if they took a lamb and they sacrificed it and they put the blood on the, the doorpost of their house And that blood would be like a sign to the angel of death who would then pass over that house. And so they would be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, right after Passover came the Feast of Unlimited Bread. Verse 12 talks about that. And that that commemorates the Exodus itself. It took place a day after, it lasted for a week. And it was named after the unleavened bread the Jews took in their haste, leaving Egypt. By this time, though, both of those feasts had been you know, clumped together, so Passover, unlimited bread. It's like one big celebration, one big week-long feast, and it's just about to begin, according to verse 12. Now, you wouldn't know this just by casually reading verse 12, but there's actually a big question here when it comes to the timing of the Passover. So just in, in short, here's the issue. You know, you read the Gospel of John, and it appears that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover. That's what John 19.14 you know, very clearly says. He was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover. And we know that Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So that means when he died that afternoon, Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple at the same time that he died. However, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, It shows Jesus and the disciples eating a Passover meal, the Last Supper, the night before Thursday night, which meant Passover lambs had to be slaughtered Thursday afternoon. So the question is, which one is it? Was it Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon? When was Passover that year? How can Jesus observe a Passover meal, which we're going to see in our text, on Thursday night, but then be crucified as a Passover lamb the next day? How does that work? And what you'll find is rather remarkable. There's no contradiction, but a a very interesting reckoning of days back then. The common convention of most Jews, especially in and around Jerusalem, was to reckon days from sunset to sunset. That's when the day started. After sundown, it's a new day. And so to them, the day of preparation for Passover started Thursday at sundown and lasted until Friday at sundown. And then after sundown, that's when the new day started, They would observe their Passover meal after sunset. So yes, as Jesus was killed that Friday in the afternoon, 
Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple as he died, which is extremely significant. And this also means that all those Jews who were involved in killing Jesus, that very night after sunset, they observed Passover. They celebrated Passover. But some other Jews, those notably from the north like Galilee, they reckon days from sunrise to sunrise. It gets very confusing because we reckon days from midnight to midnight. But that was never done in the ancient world because, you know, when's midnight? But it appears that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they reflect this reckoning as Jesus did and many other Jews. And for them, the Passover meal was the evening before, which to us, we'd call it Thursday night. And this required some Passover lambs to be sacrificed Thursday afternoon, but Mark tells us that actually that took place. It appears that the temple authorities compromised with the Jews who followed this other calendar to allow Passover lambs to be slaughtered on Thursday afternoon and Friday afternoon. It actually had practical benefits because there was way too many lambs to slaughter all in one day. The historian Josephus tells us that in the year AD 66, on Passover that year, 255,000 lambs were killed in, in one Passover. And that's, that's too many for one day. So it was actually convenient for them to split it up over two days based on these different reckonings. Now here's the point. Here's why I'm even telling you this. All this goes to say that Jesus was technically able to both observe a legitimate Passover meal, but still die as a Passover lamb the following day. And Jesus, he had to observe that final Passover meal. We're going to understand that more in our text as we go through, but he's going to inaugurate a new covenant, and he needs to explain that. He needs to redefine what Passover means for God's people. But at the same time, he also had to die as a Passover lamb. The entire ritual of Passover, it prophetically foreshadows and points to Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God. And so if Christ didn't die on that day, as the lambs were being killed in the temple, all that imagery from the Old Testament would lose its meaning. But amazingly, through God's sovereignty, Jesus died on, the, on precisely the day that God planned for him to die, and even the precise hour that God planned for him to die. The same moment he died as the Lamb of God, other lambs were being killed in the temple. But the great difference is, whereas the blood of those lambs could do nothing but memorialize God's deliverance uh, from slavery in Egypt, the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, his blood actually purchased deliverance from slavery to sin. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus understood, and he knew, he was the Lamb of God. Remember at the beginning when John the Baptist first saw him, he said, John 1.29, of Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that was his mission. That was his role. That was the purpose for which he came. And to fulfill that, Jesus had to die on that Friday afternoon, the preparation for the Passover. And you look at that, you know, what does it take for that to happen? There's so many circumstances. You, you couldn't plan for that. You can't, you can't make that happen. It's simply beyond human orchestration. The only answer is God's sovereignty. No one can control future events that specifically like this, but, but God. And think about it this way. 
You know, back in 1999, there was a bit of a craze to have the first millennium baby. There's stories about parents that were trying to time their conception so that they would have the first baby born on January 1st, 2000. And just, just imagine this, just pretend someone said they'll, they'll pay you $10 million if you have the first baby boy born naturally one minute after midnight, January 1st, 2000. Also, it had to be at Glendale Adventist Hospital. That's where I was born. Also, had to be by Dr. Freels doing the delivery. And also had to have these four specific nurses who were there at the same time. But none of those people could be told of the plan. You can't warn them. You can't tell them. They have to know nothing. They just have to show up and actually be there. Now, okay, $10 million sounds nice, but that, that's just not going to happen. There's no way you could orchestrate that, especially those people doing their own thing, working on their own schedules. There's, there's no way that's going to happen. There's too many factors outside of your control. You can't arrange this even if you tried. And that's what the death of Jesus was like, but only a hundredfold. So many prophetically predicted factors came, f- came to fruition and fulfillment in his death. It's beyond reason. The only explanation is the sovereign hand of God. Like 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Jesus, he is our Passover lamb. He is. And for that, he had to die on that day. No other day, no other hour would suffice. And God in his sovereignty assured that this was the case. So first, we find God was sovereign over the very day that Jesus died. But God's sovereignty over the death of Jesus doesn't stop there. Not only was it extremely important for Jesus to die on the day of preparation for the Passover, Jesus also had to have that last Passover meal. Why? Like like we talked about, because as the new Lamb of God, he was going to redefine Passover for God's people. He was going to inaugurate a new covenant. He needed to explain that. So we've already seen how Jesus could do both, how he could observe that Passover meal and still die as a Passover lamb. But now, let's see how God orchestrated this final meal. Let's put it this way. Number two, God's sovereignty over the symbol of Christ's death. God's sovereignty over the symbol of Christ's death. Let's, let's start back from the top again. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go? and prepare for you to eat the Passover. So we're sometime Thursday morning, most likely. The disciples know they're going to go and observe Passover dinner that night with Jesus. They've got to make preparations. Passover had to be observed within the city limits of Jerusalem, but they're staying in Bethany, so they've got to go into town and find some place. But now let's watch as God sovereignly directs them to where they're going to go through Christ's instructions. Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Starts off with Jesus sending two of his disciples into the city. We learn in Luke's gospel that these two disciples were Peter and John. It's always Peter and John. They just go together. Peter and John. And when they get into town, a certain man will meet them. Who? We don't know. doesn't say. He has no name. All that's said of him is he's carrying a, a pitcher of water. 
Now that's actually pretty significant because in the ancient Near East, that's something a man never did. It was to the women who would carry that pitcher of water, you know, on their head, just balancing it. it that's not what was work for women traditionally. So you never see a man doing this. Typically, it'd be like today seeing a man carrying a really big purse. You're, you're going to stand out. Maybe not so much anymore, but in the past, you'd stand out. So still, Jesus, he gives them nothing specific here. He doesn't say, go to this place. He doesn't say, go find Ron. He's just like, just go find this water pitcher guy. He'll meet you. And that's it. Yeah, he's going to stand out. But remember, Passover, there's an extra hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. So still, the chances of them finding this guy are pretty slim. Some people think Jesus had prearranged this whole meeting. But still, the chances of the water pitcher guy finding Peter and John in the massive crowd are still extremely slim. And again, Jesus, he's being super vague. He doesn't say, go to this house. He just says, go into town. This guy will meet you. And he'll take you where you want to go. And so he says, when you see him, follow him. And then verse 14, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So here we learn this man was probably a slave, which is why he was carrying the pitcher on his head. And he's going to lead them to his master's house. And Peter and John are then to ask the owner about his guest room. And here, in this case, Peter and John are going to be led to the house of a guy who, who knows Jesus, and he's, he's friendly with Jesus. All they have to say is, hey, the master needs a room. And this guy will say, okay, sure thing. He'll give him the room, he's got the provision, and it's already prepared. Hence, verse 15, it says, And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. Many homes in Jerusalem had separate living areas built on top. It's kind of like a second floor. The only difference is that the stairs leading up were on the outside, so you could get in by yourself. It's like a condo. You could just get in by, on your own. That's what this upper room was like. It was private. It was spacious, at least enough for 13 people. had enough low-lying tables for the 13 of them to observe Passover together. The tables were surrounded with not chairs, but couches, more like glorified cushions. So forget the Da Vinci painting. That's not what it was like. They, the custom was to recline on couches over this meal. But everything was set up. Everything was already in order. It was just ready to go. And Peter and John, after they receive these scant instructions, they go and they carry them out. And they, they have very few details to go by, but they find everything just like Jesus said. It all goes exactly like he said it would go. Verse 16. It says, The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. All things went just as Jesus said. But this was not a chance encounter. This was not a prearranged meeting. This was a divine appointment. And what's the point, though? Why, why did Jesus do it like this? Why did he say this? Why this like clandestine operation and these very vague details? Why, why is he preparing for Passover like this? Why doesn't Peter say, or why doesn't Jesus say, hey, Peter and John, just go to Joe's house. He's got it all set up. Just we'll meet you there. Why is, he, why is he being so vague? Well, there is a practical reason, namely to keep the details of this final meal hidden from Judas. 
Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him that night. He knows what's going to happen. But it's so essential that he has this final evening with his disciples. It can't be interrupted. And if Jesus gave away the Passover location too soon, well, Judas surely would have him arrested there. But with these cryptic instructions, Judas would have no knowledge of where the meeting was going to be. He'd, he'd find out when the others found out at the very last minute. And Jesus is, is thereby assuring that he's going to have a final time with his disciples. It's so important. So there's, there's a practical reason why he did it like this. But there's a greater significance behind this episode and why Jesus does and says this. And that is to highlight the fact that he's in control of the events leading up to his death. This is on purpose to show that he's just sovereignly directing how things are going. This is part of God's plan, which Jesus is willingly carrying out. And it's not the first time. Remember something like this, almost exactly like this, happened before. Do you remember? It was at the beginning of the Passion Week during the triumphal entry. And just turn backwards to Mark chapter 11. We saw this a while ago at the beginning of Mark 11. Just a few days before, as Jesus is entering the city, you remember what happened? Chapter 11, verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. You can see the similarities between these two episodes. They have many words in common. Jesus is sending two disciples on a covert mission. Jesus uses foresight. There's too many coincidences to all be prearranged. And everything goes exactly as predicted. And the effect of both of these episodes, one at the beginning, one at the end of the Passion Week, is to show Jesus knows what's going on here. He's he's in control of, of what's going on. His whole march to his death has been planned from the beginning. And he's showing it. I mean, look at Jesus himself. It's not the picture of a guy who knows he's about to die. I mean, imagine an airplane where the engines, they go out loses all power, the controls are totally unresponsive, it's, it's dead in the air. And that pilot would probably be freaking out. He'd be crying, he'd be panicking, he'd be desperately trying to save himself, hitting the buttons, he'd just be freaking out. But Jesus is not freaking out. He's not in a panic. He's not worried. He knows the plane's going down, so to speak. He's going to die, he knows that. But he's, he's trusting God. Because this is part of the plan. The cross has been the plan from the beginning. And he's now just, the hour has come. So you see, Jesus, he's not just some tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. He's no victim of circumstance. He's the willing lamb of God who throughout his entire ministry knew that God would take him there. He knew this was the end from the beginning. And the hour for which he came was near. And every step of the way, God is giving evidence that he's in control, which shows this is God's salvation. This is something he's doing. And this even extends to the means of Christ's death, namely the betrayal by Judas. 
God was even sovereign over that betrayal. Lastly, number three, God's sovereignty over the means of Christ's death. God's sovereignty over the means of Christ's death. Continuing in verse 17, it says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve. Just briefly, John and Peter, we find they had succeeded with their preparations. Come evening, it was time for that Passover meal to begin. We're going to talk about the details of that Passover meal next week. It's very significant. But at some point during that meal, so now they're all together in the upper room, Jesus has an announcement. Verse 18. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. This was a shocker. Several times before, Jesus had told them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. He even told them, I'll be handed over by the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to kill me. So they had known that before, even though they didn't want to believe it. He had told them that, but he had not told them this before. He never said that he would die sparked by the betrayal of one of one of the twelve. This is the first time he had revealed this. And they can't believe it. It's unbelievable. They, they loved him. They've spent years following him. How could this be? There's, there's no way this could be. And naturally, the disciples are deeply disturbed by this. Verse 19, they began to be grieved and, and, to, say to, one, and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And this was painful for them to hear. It's like having a child and your child says to you, you don't really love me. Those words would be so hurtful, one, because it's not true, and two, for some reason, though, they still feel that. Well, in the minds of the disciples, they love Jesus, but he's saying, one of you doesn't love me. One of you doesn't really love me. And so they ask him one by one, surely not, not I. It's not me, right? This question is phrased in the Greek such that it expects a negative answer. They're like, it's not me, right? I just want you to affirm and clear me like it's not me, and they go one by one. They all wanted to be cleared by Jesus because they just couldn't believe this. But then who who is it? Who was it? Who could it be? Jesus clarifies, sort of, verse 20. And he said to them, it's it's one of the twelve. One who dips with me in the bowl. There may have been some other people in the room, people serving the table. But either way, he makes it clear it's one of the twelve. It's one of them. One of the guys sitting at, at the table with him in table fellowship. He says, it's one who dips with me in the bowl. These were communal bowls. They were filled with vinegar and bitter herbs. They dipped the unleavened bread into them. And most likely, they're, they're all sharing the same bowl. That seems to be the picture. So it's probably just another way of saying it's one of the twelve. But this highlights the betrayal. In the ancient Near East, sharing a meal together was a sign of friendship and fellowship. Just having a table, breaking bread together was a big deal. But to break that fellowship, to betray, to show hostility to your host, that was a huge offense. And so here Jesus is accentuating the betrayal. One of you is going to betray me. Even one of you who's breaking bread with me is going to betray me. John tells us that at this point, the disciples, they had no clue. Luke tells us they started talking among themselves like, who is it? They have no suspects. They have no idea who this could be. To us, though, we know. We're not surprised. We know how this story goes. It's Judas. 
Judas Iscariot, perhaps the most skilled hypocrite ever. Right up to the very end, the disciples, they never suspected him of being the guy. And what does that tell you? That's amazing. He was that skilled at just playing the part. And that's what it was. He was merely playing the part. When Jesus announced that he was being betrayed, how do you think Judas responded? Matthew 26, verse 25, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. He said the right thing. He just says what all the other guys are saying. It's not me, right, Rabbi? But in his heart, he already knows what he's done and what he's about to do. At this point, Judas's heart was fully hardened. Understand, Judas had so many opportunities to repent. He was with Jesus for years. He saw signs and wonders. He heard the teaching. He beheld the Son of God in the flesh. He also heard the call to deny self and to follow Jesus. But he was unwilling He loved sin. He loved self. He refused to make Jesus the Lord of his life. It's like God warned Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He said, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Well, Judas was mastered by his sin. He persisted in his unbelief despite God's mercy. Judas even experienced mercy that night. You realize that? I mean, Jesus, after all, he didn't give him up. Think about that. Jesus announced, one of you is betraying me. And Jesus knew it's Judas. But Jesus didn't say, and by the way, it's Judas. He left him unnamed. Why did he do that? It's almost like he's giving him one last opportunity to repent. It's not too late. Judas, repent. Seek me. Return the 30 silver. It's not too late. Right before that, Jesus washed Judas' feet. He was among them when he washed their feet. He showed him love. Judas knew this man was not worthy of death. Jesus had invited him in, made him among the twelve. They had broken bread together. John even tells us that right before, right after rather, Jesus dipped some bread in the bowl and gave it to Judas. That's a show in that culture of love and friendship. But Judas was still unwilling. At first, he would not repent. Now, he could not repent. His heart was hardened. And the moment he took that bread from Jesus, Satan entered in. According to John 13, 27, his heart fully turned to stone and Satan entered into him. Judas rejected God. He chose sin. He hardened his own heart so God handed him over, said, let him go. He became the vessel for the devil's age-old plan to kill the Son of God. Right after that, Judas would depart to do his deed. You know the story. But not before Jesus says this. Let's finish with verse 21, a critical verse where Jesus says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, or rather would have been good for that man if he had not been born. All that's left for Judas now is woe. The Bible teaches greater judgment for greater sin, and that spells bad news for Judas. 
it would have been better if he had never been born. Truly, non-existence would be preferred to the eternal existence he will know, and that is God's wrath. But this verse, verse 21, this is where we see it all come together. This really sharpens our focus on what this whole little passage has been about. And first and foremost, this is all another display of God's sovereignty, even over the death of Christ. Jesus was saddened, but he wasn't surprised by Judas' betrayal. Why? Because that's how it was supposed to happen. And Jesus knew that. Jesus says, For the Son of Man is to go unto death, just as it's been written of him. And it's all been written. Jesus himself, he dies in such a way that he fulfills hundreds of prophecies in his life and his death. The time of his death, the purpose, the circumstances, the people involved, the day, what they do with his garments afterward. I mean, just so much. It all comes together in his death. It all shows God was orchestrating the whole thing. The death of Jesus magnifies the hand of God. And the fact that this was all foretold hundreds and even thousands of years before, it just shows, it proves God, God's in control. He is doing this, and it's going on schedule. That train is never late to the station. Shows up on time. Right time, right people, right event, right outcome. And think about this. How many times did people try and kill Jesus? A lot. From his birth, he was a little baby, and Herod tried to kill him, but didn't succeed. And then in his life, his ministry, several times the leaders, they tried to kill him you know, for claiming to be God. They went after him, but he always eluded their grasp. Why? Because the hour had not come. They had no chance. But here at the end, it's kind of ironic. Right in our passage, we find they actually they didn't want to kill him. They wanted to wait until after the feast to kill him, but they also fail at this too, because now the hour had come. They never get what they want. Jesus always gets what he wants. God was in total control over the means of Christ's death. And understand, that even includes all the bad things that happened to Jesus. His murder was the greatest evil ever, right? Yeah, even though men meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He sovereignly worked in and through wicked men to bring about his salvation. And isn't that true of Judas himself? Did you know that the betrayal of Judas was prophetically predicted in the Old Testament through typology? Back in Psalm 41, King David, he laments the betrayal of his close friend. He says in Psalm 41, verse 9, My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The context here is when David's son Absalom rebelled against him. Remember that? And in that rebellion, Ahithophel, was David's closest friend and and trusted advisor. He betrayed David and he joined Absalom and counseled against David. And David was crushed by this betrayal. I mean, they had broken bread together. And so David prays in Psalm 41 for deliverance. In the end, God thwarted Ahithophel's counsel. Ahithophel realized that his betrayal of David was the wrong thing. He was crushed by the guilt. He couldn't do anything about it. So he hung himself. And the same thing, as you know, happened to Judas. He realized in the end his betrayal of Jesus was wrong, but it was too late. He was hardened. His guilt crushed him, so he hung himself. And you see, Ahithophel 
prophetically prefigures Judas. And Jesus himself, Jesus in John 13, Jesus quotes Psalm 41 verse 9 in connection with Judas sharing bread with him, but then betraying him. Jesus himself draws those connections. And Judas acted on his own. God didn't make him do it, never coerced him. But nonetheless, he still fulfilled God's sovereign plan. And the disciples later came to the same conclusion. After the resurrection, Acts 1.16, they said, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those arrested, who arrested Jesus. It's just undeniable, undeniable and unavoidable. Scripture everywhere presents God as sovereign. He's the master of the universe. And his plan for all things is nowhere more evident than in the death of his own son. God is somehow able to work his good and perfect will even through sinful men. It goes for Judas. The same goes for Pilate, for the religious leaders. Same thing. Listen to this. Acts chapter 4, verses 27-28. Where Peter says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. All these people gathered. They killed Jesus, but Peter said they were just doing what God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. It's just what it says. They gathered. They acted on their own. Yet they did what God's hand predestined to occur. I mean, can it be much more clearer? God has a plan and a purpose. In this case, it was to accomplish salvation through the sacrifice of his son on the cross And God, in his profound sovereignty, he's able to work that out through the willing choices of his creatures. And believe it or not, all this even applies to Satan and Satan's involvement in the death of Christ. And wasn't that the first gospel promise? Genesis 3.15, right after the fall in the garden. What's God's first promise of salvation? He says regarding the seed of the woman that even though the snake, the Satan, or or the serpent, Satan, even though he will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel, that the seed, the son of the woman, that he will crush him on the head. That's the first gospel promise, the victory of God's seed, the son. And from the beginning, it's been foretold. Just, Just marvel at the plan and the sovereignty of God. And then realize that God reveals this in Scripture for a reason. You get that point? That there's a reason why he's telling us about this. It's because when you see God at work like this, it completely transforms how you understand the death of Jesus. It wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't a crime per se. It was just God's plan. And therefore, his death was not a defeat. To the whole world, it looked like a defeat, right? But to God, that was the plan. That's victory. It it worked. Jesus was not a victim, but a triumphant Savior. And you only can say that if you see God's hand at work. Jesus didn't have to do this. If he wanted to, he could have saved himself. He knew Judas was betraying him, so Jesus could have said, 
hey, one of you is going to betray me, and it's Judas, so get him. He could have done that, and they all would have gotten him, and he'd be safe. But Jesus willingly accepted God's plan, because even though it meant great suffering for him, he knew it also meant great salvation for us. So upon hearing this, you, you, sh- you should marvel and thank God for his sovereign plan of redemption and thank Jesus for willingly enduring that plan of salvation because it did come with profound suffering for him. But through that plan, we can be saved. And at the same time, I'll also say this, doesn't God's sovereignty here also transform how we handle our dark times? Bad things may happen to us. We may suffer, but that doesn't mean things are out of control. It doesn't mean God's no longer on the throne. To the contrary, God is still today guiding all things according to his will. And we know this spells good news for us, Romans 8, 28, for those who love him. God has the power to take what others mean as evil and use it for good. For our good. That's what he did with his son. That's what he continues to do and promises to do for us. So when dark times come for you, you need to remember the cross. And you need to realize, God, he's still in control. It could all be coming down around you, but he's still in control and directing this for his glory and your good. Just, you need to hold on to that. You need to trust that, not despair, but like Jesus, trust. That is our responsibility in trials to trust him. You know, with all this talk of God's sovereignty, hopefully you don't think this means, though, that you aren't responsible for your choices and actions in life because you still are. This is a good final thought. And I want to make sure you understand as a balance, God's sovereignty never eliminates man's responsibility. And this is also perfectly highlighted by Judas in this last verse. Judas is not off the hook. Though this was God's plan, he is fully responsible for his sin. And people wonder, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility together? The good news is God doesn't require you to fully figure it out But it's safe to say this, why was Judas still responsible? Well, because he acted on his own. He acted according to his own will. He did what he wanted to do. He wasn't coerced. God didn't make him do it. The devil didn't make him do it. Yes, somehow it fit God's plan, but Judas chose to betray. He chose sin, and he will be held responsible for that. The same goes for all people. God's sovereignty never excuses us from our responsibility for sin. From our human perspective, we we do not deny God's sovereignty, but from our human perspective, all we need to worry about is, is our choice. Your choices and your actions, they do matter because God says they matter, and you're going to be held responsible for them. So choose well. We everywhere affirm God's sovereignty in Christ's death and our salvation. That's our trust. That's our hope. That's our comfort. That's why it's revealed to us. But that does not negate our responsibility in this life. So what will you choose? And who will you choose? 
The most important decision you will ever make is what to make of Jesus. Will you see your sin and choose to follow him as Lord and Savior? And in John chapter 6, right after Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, right after that Jesus said, he who believes has eternal life. You don't have to figure out how both of those statements go together. You just have to believe. That's what God calls you to do. You just have to believe. So don't choose your sin like Judas. And don't be a phony. Choose Jesus truly, genuinely, from the heart. Submit to him as your Lord and Savior. And then God promises that he will sovereignly and graciously give you the greatest gift ever undeserved eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, you are our gracious God and you are our sovereign God. You you created all things, you uphold all things by the word of your power, and you direct all things. It is an unavoidable conclusion if we just read scripture and take it at its word. You are sovereign. You are the master. That's part of what it means to say you are Lord. We take comfort in this because you're good. This would be the greatest fear if you were not good. But Lord, in your goodness, we can take delight and comfort knowing that you're working all things for your glory and for our good. You highlighted that through Christ on the cross. Lord, you have the power to take the greatest evil ever and then to transform that into the greatest good ever. For this, you receive the glory and we just get the blessing. We we don't have it all figured out. We don't know all things behind the scenes, but you've revealed this to comfort us that we would simply trust in you. And at the same time, though, Lord, we, we still have to choose. You call us to believe, to repent and believe, to choose. And then we choose Christ. He is the Lord. We thank you for opening our eyes to see him. I pray for those here who haven't, that you would do that. You would take the veil away. They could behold the Christ, the Son of God, who willingly died as that Passover lamb. That through the blood of that lamb, we can be truly redeemed. As to you, we give the glory now, Lord, for our salvation. May we, may we take comfort from these truths, but also just be spurred on to greater worship and greater devotion towards you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.